Hello and welcome back to Craft Truck. My name is Jesse Eichmann and you are listening to a Business of Film podcast episode. Today we're being joined by Richard Boddington. Uh, Richard's first film was a low-budget endeavor and he's since gone on to do uh, larger budget, uh, I guess you could say market-driven family films. And uh, he shares with us today some really cool insights on uh, and tips for low-budget filmmaking during production, during post-production and uh, things involving casting and how he went about, you know, doing that on uh, on lower on lower budgeted films. If you can hear that in the background, uh, there's somebody drilling a screw into my head uh, <laughs> on and off during this podcast. You may hear some distortion, and that's because the guys next door are doing some construction. So I apologize for that. Uh, but uh, Richard does come through clear. He's got some great stuff to share with you. And if you are checking out the world of crafttruck.com, be sure to also check out our interview series uh called In The Cut, which is our feature interview series with the editors. We've got some really amazing people on there. We've just gotten started. we got 20 episodes coming your way of season one of In The Cut. So uh, do check that out at crafttruck.com. And also, if you haven't picked up our new ebook, it's free. You can get it on the website, and it's called uh, Six Things That You Need To Know uh, When Buying a Digital cinema camera so go click go get that it's free it's it's fun it's uh it's for you so hey uh here we go crafttruck.com business of film richard boddington enjoy this one hello richard welcome to the show thank you very much jesse uh before we get started or as we get started uh why don't you take a minute and tell our listeners a little bit about you who you are what you do uh and how you got started I'm uh, Richard Boddington, uh, producer, director, writer, and editor, and oftentimes DOP as well. And I just delivered my uh, third feature film called Against the Wild, which stars Natasha Henstridge and C.J. Adams, who played the boy from The Odd Life of Timothy Green from 2012. Prior to that, in uh, 2010, I released a film called The Dog Father, which starred Chris Parnell. And prior to that, I released a feature film, very low-budget uh, feature film called Dark Reprieve, which was a sci-fi thriller-type movie. And uh, I got started in film when I was about 12 years old. My mother brought home a uh, Super 8 camera, and I picked that up and made Super 8 films all through the rest of public school, all through high school. When I finished high school, I went to uh, film school at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, I came back to Canada as soon as I was done, as I was hired as a producer at the CTV network in Toronto, and I did that for five years. I went to TMN for one year, which is the movie network, and after that, I started a uh, stock footage business called Time Image, uh, which became quite successful, and I traveled the globe uh, shooting stuff for my library, which is now sold through uh, Getty and Thought Equity, and Photo Search, and then I decided it was time to make my first feature. And your first feature was? Dark Reprieve. So just uh, let's talk about that first feature and kind of dive into that a little, little bit, because uh, I'm guessing that it's that first feature that led to your second, that led to your third. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about y how you went about the, I mean, first of all, what was that first feature about? You said it was a sci-fi thriller. What, what was it about and what was your approach to it? 
the um, the movie was about uh, two people that suddenly wake up mysteriously inside an abandoned prison, and they're the only people in the prison. Eventually, they meet up with each other and try to solve the mystery as to why they've been put into this prison. They have no memory of what caused them to be there. A uh, number of strange events happen to them in the prison. They're terrorized by this uh, sort of ape-like hairy monster that chases them around. Uh, they keep finding mysterious numbers uh, throughout the prison. Uh, the prison is populated by a number of uh, ghosts. So Okay, so basically a contained thriller, two people, yeah. low budget. It was designed, it sounds like, and you wrote that script, if I'm not mistaken. That script I found uh, online. Oh, okay. And, yeah. uh, it was originally set in an abandoned hospital and uh, discovered that uh, finding an abandoned uh, hospital was uh, next to impossible. Uh, so I found the abandoned prison in Barrie, Ontario, which is over 100 years old and a heritage site and terrifying in its own right. I can't believe they even put people in there to begin with. Uh, it had been closed down for four years. So I went to the province and I said, can I use it? And they said, sure. So I had solved the location issue. And uh, we used the offices in there as our dressing rooms and stuff. And I only had a crew of eight. Uh, and we shot the movie over 15 days. Uh, probably the most interesting thing about the production on that film is that uh, – I mean, I, I rewrote the script completely to fit the prison venue. So but, what you did was you basically tailored your tailored your production to the location that you were able to get on a budget. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And out of curiosity, what was the budget? It was $148,000. Okay. And uh, most of that money went toward uh, buying 35-millimeter film stock, processing 35-millimeter film stock, and transferring 35-millimeter film stock. Uh, my feeling was that if I could shoot the movie entirely on 35, that would put it in a different class of low-budget independent movies where everybody else was shooting on uh, DV and Handycam at the time. Was that uh, if that was thirty five millimeter? What what was the year on that film? Two thousand six, two thousand yeah, two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah, right. Okay, so that was just the end of the of the uh, that was the the end of thirty five millimeter right around there. It was uh, it, it, it was winding down. Uh, certainly, a lot of big productions were still using it extensively, and uh, my feeling was that if I combine the thirty five millimeter production value with the production value that the set was bringing that I would have a much more expensive-looking movie than $148,000. Now, did you consult in any way with any people in uh, the market, sales companies, distribution companies? And I ask this only because we just finished up a podcast with a, a sales agent uh, um, just the other day, and you know, one of the things that they certainly recommend was engaging in conversations with you know, market experts to figure out what the market wanted and to, you know, approach the filmmaking process, not entirely, but certainly to a certain extent from the idea of what, you know, the market demand is. So I'm curious, when you went out there to do your first feature, did you approach it with this, you know, market-minded approach? Or was this just a creatively... I want to do a movie, I'm going to kind of find anything that I can that I can do at this budget that makes sense that you love. I didn't know what a sales agent was when I started. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought, uh, I'll make it. 
and somehow I'll get it into the marketplace. <laughs> you know, that's probably a better way to go, to be honest, in some respects, because you weren't, uh, uh, I guess no one's going to tell you something that you don't want to hear. You just went out and did it. I just went out and did it, and uh, the number of mistakes I made could just be listed on forever. Uh, I just thought, well, I'm making a movie on 35 and no one else is, therefore my own sound, theirs won't. <laughs> so it, uh, out of curiosity then, I mean, because I, 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 I think mistakes are great. And, you know, certainly if I were to look back to the first movie that I ever made, uh, there's, uh, you know, a mistake list along, you know, as long as my arm. Um, what would be the three biggest mistakes that you made during that process that you would know not to make now? Well, mistake number one was that I made a fully Canadian content movie. It could have it could have qualified for tax credits, but because I did not research the whole thing thoroughly enough, I did not bother to set up a Canadian incorporated company to make the movie, and therefore it was completely completely disqualified from collecting any tax credits. Now, a one hundred forty eight thousand dollar movie, it wouldn't have been much, but even fifty or sixty thousand dollars would have been worthwhile. Uh, against the budget. So that was a big mistake. I didn't make that same mistake again. And uh, secondly, uh, I didn't have the uh, the script uh, too well vetted. Uh, there, was, there was an obvious flaw in the script that I did not see, which was that uh, with a two-hander and two people, I had nothing to cut to in the store. And how, after having watched 10,000 movies throughout my life, I didn't notice that. It's still a mystery to me. Um, what do you mean when you say nothing to cut to? As well, I, you... I didn't have a, I didn't have a B storyline or a C oh, storyline okay. or anything. Yeah. So after the whole movie was done and cut, I actually shot another three days where I wrote in from scratch uh, a B storyline and edited that into the entire movie, uh, which helped it tremendously. I also ended up reshooting the the, the final scene from scratch, uh, improving the budget. Uh, the improving the budget quality look of it. Uh, several buyers had looked at it and said, "You know, that's gonna. It's so it's so terrible, Richard. We can't even do anything with it." So I'd actually improved it to such a point where people thought, "Wow, now it really looks slick." Then you know, did a very nice job with it. And again, that was pieced together over time after I'd finished the principal photography. And uh, I think that uh, I would have somehow found the money to bring in at least one. B grade or C grade actor, even for a couple of days. If I had taken twenty thousand dollars out of the budget and flown somebody in from LA for just two days, just to make an appearance, just so they, just so a sales agent could have said, "Well, you know, this X Y Z actor is in it," uh, that would have helped it out quite a bit too. Did you bring the film to sales companies afterwards to look at what sounds like you did, and what yes. was the reaction to it? Did you were you, were you able to do any business with it? Yes, uh, I mean. Uh, the uh, it actually had I mean it had a very my I, I had two goals in making that my, I paid for it all myself. I had two goals in making that film. Uh, number one was to get it into some form of distribution, and number two was to just break even. And uh, you know it did both, and so uh, in in the U.S. I ended up selling the movie to a company called Image which is a very good distributor uh, outside of the studios, one of the few studios that can actually pay in advance. And a funny thing happened was that uh, one day I came home and there was this man in my backyard raking leaves. And I talked to him for a while and I said, I work in film. And he said, oh, really? I used to work in film. 
and he used to be a DP who had shot a number of uh, number of projects. He put me in touch with a sales agent in Toronto uh, who said, listen, I have the best contact for you in terms of making your cover art. And that he put me in contact with this guy in L.A. who does a lot of cover art for all the major studios. He designed cover art for the movie that made it look like a $10 million production. Uh, we took the whole package over to Image, and Image was immediately captivated by the cover art. They said, wow, we can sell this movie just based on the cover art alone. So they bought it, and it got into distribution everywhere in the States, like all retail. It went to Netflix, it went to Amazon, iTunes, Walmart, Best Buy, uh, all, all retail outlets you can possibly imagine in the United States, everywhere. So you must have surpassed, I guess, at that point, the goal of the project. Well, it sounds like you, you, you met your goal, got distribution, you broke even on the project, great. Um, probably more so from a distribution perspective than you initially thought going in, if you even had any preconceptions of what the distribution of it would have been before you started, which it sounds like you didn't. No, you know, it got, it got way better distribution in the United States than I ever could have imagined. Uh, to this day, you can go to any of the websites of those retailers and it's still on there. And uh, in Canada, uh, a channel had opened up called Super Channel, and uh, they were desperately looking for original Canadian content movies. Now, even though I couldn't qualify for the tax credits, I could qualify for a C number from the CRTC uh, because the movie was a uh, 9 out of 10 Canadian content. Even though it didn't get the tax credits, it was still qualified as Canadian content. Um, so I did have a, a C number, and I was able to make a very good sale to the Super Channel. And uh, they ran it for 18 months, and they ran it quite a, quite a number of times. Uh, so, so just with respect to, because I, I, I want to move from this project, obviously, to how this you know helped you get your second and third project. But if you were to just still your approach to low-budget filmmaking... Uh, into things that, uh, not that you wouldn't do, but, you know, just tips that you would have for a low-budget filmmaker. What would be, um, certainly in the areas of either production and post-production? Because I know, uh, one of the things that I, that I do know about you is that you do approach these things with a very keen eye. And so, what would be your tips for low-budget filmmaking? Well, my number one tip for low-budget filmmakers is do not make a low-budget movie. That'll be point number one. But if you're going to do it... <laughs> Can you explain that? Well, really, you know, once you get into it and you realize, you know, how difficult it is, and, you know, the, the, the market is so incredibly saturated now with independent movies, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, you go to American film market and there's 3,000 movies on sale. Not 300, 3,000. They're not all the same genre, and they're not all English-language movies. That's true, and they come from all over the world. But still, it's a lot of product. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very – there are so many movies that have been made for budgets. I know personally been made for budgets between 3 4 and $5 million that were done two, three years ago and today are still sitting on a shelf with no distribution whatsoever. Now, just, just to be clear, though, although I, do, I want to continue with, obviously, these – uh, with your thoughts on, on low budget filmmaking, but let's just take a pause for just a second. Uh, the you know the three, four, five million dollar movie is very different than the hundred fifty thousand dollar movie with you know let's say 
a good cover art, sellable concept, maybe a B actor had you done it differently, yeah. uh, can recoup its money. So that's when you, true. When you say don't make a low budget movie, what what are you really saying? Well, I'm saying that uh, if you're thinking that there's going to be big money in it or, or a return, or you've got the next you know paranormal activity that was made for thirteen thousand ends up making a hundred million, those are the you know dramatic exceptions to the rules. That's like winning the lottery. Uh, I mean, if that were the case, and the studios would stop making hundred million dollar tentpole movies, and they would just make a whole bunch of thirteen thousand dollar movies and hope one of them hits. So that's even though you know I'm a huge fan of Warren Pillai and what he achieved there. Uh, it's not statistically relevant in terms of the, the business of making movies. So, you know, the, the the biggest outlet now really for independent movies is television sales. Uh, getting a theatrical release, wide theatrical release, is really next to impossible uh, without a very significant P&A spend. So television offers a number of advantages in the sense that you can make a cash sale, you don't have any P&A spends, and your delivery to the network is basically going to be an E&O certificate, a signed contract, and a master tape, and you're done. And you can get a very nice license deal there. And a lot of people will see the work. If it's you know airing on a primetime national network, uh, you know, you're going to get a lot of people that are going to tune in and watch it. So it's, uh, you, know, you have to find an incredibly careful balance of the budget level versus the return. And that's extremely difficult to do in film because uh, the more you spend, the more you have to make back. But the more you spend, the more potentially you could make back. And it's an impossible catch-22 quagmire that if anybody could figure out with consistency, I mean, they'd obviously be extremely wealthy. The studios have, in making films for 100 years, haven't figured out this uh, mysterious formula when you see giant tentpole movies that go down at the box office. And then, of course, you've got lots of unsold product at, at the uh, at the low end. So, Dark Reprieve was, in many ways, an uh, an anomaly in the sense that it, you know, for one hundred forty eight thousand dollars, it actually got out there into mainstream distribution with uh, no name stars. Not only no name stars, but they weren't even unionized stars. They're just actors who are hoping to join the union one day. <laughs> so. That, that whole project was really based on uh, the audience, uh, a very niche part of the audience that would look past the fact that it had no stars, look past the fact that it had lower production values, and be interested in a, uh, uh, a movie that the studios wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, but would be a niche type of uh, movie for a smaller sector of the audience. So I guess coming back to then the the initial question, which was tips for low-budget filmmakers uh, in both production and post-production. Um, and, and by the way, I, I think the answer you, you, you gave is incredibly astute, um, specifically the idea that, you know, budget and financing are both, you know, essentially two sides of the same coin, but an impossible equation to actually figure out. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, tips for low-budget filmmakers. Uh, well, during, uh, I mean, if, if you can, you know, the, the idea of course is to keep you, you know, if, if you're going to sell finance, which many first time filmmakers do, that's just a reality. Uh, fact is that many first time filmmakers aren't going to work with $1 million their first time out of the gate. Uh, there are those that do, I've known those that have had much more, but just talking in, in general terms for somebody that just wants to make their own first film and get on the board like I did. 
obviously keeping the budget down as low as possible uh, is key. And if you're talking about, you know, the terms we use in producing, like putting the money on the screen, uh, you know, you're not going to have, you know, steak and lobster each day for dinner. Uh, it's going to be very minimal for the crew and keeping the crew size down as low as possible. And these days with digital technology, there's an enormous amount of work that the filmmaker can do himself or herself. I mean, there's no reason why you can't edit your own movie on your laptop. I've cut my last three features myself, uh, you know, on my laptop. Uh, there's not absolutely nothing wrong with that. You don't, you don't necessarily need, uh, to pay someone to do it. If you have the skill or you are comfortable doing it yourself. And, uh, you know, just just think about how many roles that you can combine. Probably you're going to be shooting non-union, most likely. Uh, so in that sense, there's plenty of ways to combine uh, roles. The uh, first AD can also act as the production manager quite easily. Uh, those jobs are very close uh, to each other. The uh, second AC, first AC, and loader, if you're shooting film, could all be combined into one one position if you find somebody with the right skill level who's not in the union. So you have to approach, you know, every single aspect of, of the budget as to how we're going to get the budget down, uh, in, in order to put as much value onto the screen as we possibly can on dark reprieve. I serve as my own DOP and I also, uh, was also camera operator, uh, as well. And then I had one camera assistant and that camera assistant loaded mags, uh, ran the slate and also worked as the focus puller. <laughs> uh, he's now gone on to much bigger things and he's in the union now and is a, is a, is a full-time DOP. Uh, so, you know, if you can find people that are, that are just starting out and they're qualified, then, you know, work, work with them. Uh, I certainly took the auteurs approach to, to that movie. Like I said, I didn't consult, uh, you know, with any sales agent as to what, what would work and what wouldn't work. So that's great. I mean, that's a, that's a long list of suggestions and it's actually a great list. Um, so that's all production side, uh, thoughts, anything on the post-production and let's take that not necessarily from, uh, what you did on dark reprieve, but now digital filmmaking, digital posts, digital everything, well, one of the uh, one of the unique aspects of post now is the idea that you know you could go to a website like Mandy.com and you could advertise that you have ten visual effect shots that you need to be completed, and there are an incredibly high number of visual effects artists in the United States and Canada who are either working at visual effects houses full time and could work part time for some extra income, or they're between jobs and looking for some work. And I'm certainly not suggesting anybody exploit anybody and have them work for free. But you could simply explain to this animator or this visual effects person, hey, look, it's a low-budget movie. I'm paying for it myself. Uh, I want to pay you. Can we come to an agreement for something that's fair? And uh, once you've done that, the number of you know, you'll discover the number of incredibly talented people out there in different parts of North America is quite vast. There are so many... Uh, people that you could have access to. Next thing you might you would do is start exporting your your visual <clears throat> your visual effect shots out of your timeline, uploading them to a file sharing site like you send it, having the animator start work on those shots, 
once he's done, he re-uploads them and sends them back to you, drop them in your timeline. So here's a person now that is not working in, in an office with you, so you don't need an office space for him. You've never met him. He could be thousands of miles away. The cost for you to transfer the shots back and forth is going to be zero, and the quality is going to be superb. And the amount of high-quality work that you can purchase uh, out there in the world now on the visual effects side is absolutely astounding. There are so many talented people uh, who are willing to do a few shots. You know, I've bumped into animators who want a month's work so they can go on a cruise. And they're more than happy to take uh, some low-budget work and give it a very, very high-polished look. Now, when you think about those shots now toward the end, and think that 90% of the buyers are going to judge your movie on the trailer, you've now got some very nice, high-polished, uh, big-budget-looking shots to put into your trailer, uh, which is your chief marketing piece that can really help you know, go a long way. Uh, I use this technique on Dark Reprieve quite successfully. I had animators in uh, San Francisco area, uh, and one in Toronto who I've, who I've worked now on three films and never met yet, even though he's in Toronto. And we just transfer the files back and forth uh, from each other. I'll give notes by email. He'll go back, make a few improvements, and we drop it in the timeline and we move on. And so it's like you have uh, a miniature studio that you're running for, 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 for the post, but it only exists in cyberspace. Everybody's working out of their houses. That's great. That's great. I, I think that's fantastic advice, actually. And I, I, don't, I don't know if that translates to other areas of post besides visual effects. Um, well, I know I, uh, I live an hour and a half outside of Toronto, which is where all my post is done. And, uh, you know, n normally a, a director would make, uh, you know, daily stops at a post house or at an audio mixing house while work is being uh, work is going on. And my technique has always been uh, for files to, to be made at the end of the day of the work that's been done, sent to me, I approve it, and send it back. So, uh, and, and there's a lot more of this going on, of course, now for several years now between Toronto and L.A. with, uh, you know, remote uh, post work, uh, Which, you know, being, being uh, actually, done. Yeah, I mean, now that you say it, uh, certainly you can do full, you can do audio, you can do all of that uh, if you needed to remotely. Yeah, you're talking about just maximizing your time, keeping costs down. Uh, people are spread out now. Uh, you know, the, the small budget filmmaker obviously can't afford to keep anybody on on the payroll permanently. Uh, so you're just talking about you know maximizing your time, your efficiency, and making sure that the budget is uh, you know used used productively, and the money doesn't end up in places where it's not going to translate into bigger sales at the end of the day. So let's move on to your 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 next movie. How yeah. instrumental was? your first movie in getting your second movie. And your second movie was The Dog but, Father, so yes. family-oriented movie. Yes. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to kind of bundle up a few questions here. The first being, was it a conscious decision to do family-oriented movies? Uh, you know, and, and obviously, did Dark Reprieve help you get that second movie? Well, Dark Reprieve was absolutely critical because uh, what happened was a... Uh, a person I had met online from Los Angeles who had been in the film industry for quite a while to help me uh, uh, line up distribution for Dark Reprieve, uh, he had come across uh, an equity source and, and a script uh, from a group in Chicago that wanted to make the movie uh, The Dog Father. 
And uh, he had said to these people, he said, hey, I know someone who could direct this movie for us. And also he could work as the Canadian producer to bring in all the tax credits, all in one person. And they said, well, who is this person? Well, his name is Richard Boddington. And so I talked with the, uh, with the Chicago producer on the phone for quite a while. He said, well, you know, I'd like to see your, your previous movie. Uh, <clears throat> I sent him Dark Reprieve. He watched. He called back. He said, well, I could tell it's, you know, budget challenged and you didn't have a whole lot of money to work with, but I could tell that you knew how to direct it and, uh, you know, it's well put together. Uh, so he said, you know, I don't have any issues with you directing the Dogfather, especially since now you're going to have a proper budget, a much bigger crew, uh, department heads, uh, you know, better material to work with. All of the things that were lacking on Dark Reprieve you're going to have, so I'm going to let you direct this movie. So if I had not made Dark Reprieve, uh, I don't. I really don't think Dogfather would have uh, could have happened. I wouldn't have made any contacts in the film industry first off, and secondly, I wouldn't have had a feature film to show to a potential production partner. Uh, you know, saying, "Hey, look, I've, I've made this movie. I'm willing to do something. Ready to go on to something much bigger now." Now you seem to break the rules right out of the right out of the gate there with your. I guess your well, your second film, Kids and Dogs. Yeah. Yeah, the universal rule is never work with kids and animals. And uh, I've done it twice now. Uh, Against the Wild was much more ambitious in terms of its animal cast. We'll get to that later, I guess. Uh, but you know, <clears throat> you know what? I would uh, seriously rather work with kids and animals and adult actors any day of the week. <laughs> so, no comment. Uh, it's really... Uh, really not as difficult as people make it out to be. I mean, the first challenge we had with Dogfather was that I wanted a uh, the old English bulldog to play the role of the Dogfather. And I had called all over the United States and Canada looking for a trainer who would work with me, and they all said the same thing. They all said, the reason that no one has ever used an English bulldog in the lead role of a dog movie is because they simply cannot work. They can't do enough takes, they have breathing problems, and they'll pass out in the heat, so you can't do it. I finally found a trainer in British Columbia who said, no, I think we can do it. And her name was Bonnie Judd, just happened to be one of the most noted uh, dog trainers from movies in the world with all of her credits. And uh, she put together a, a great team of bulldogs. We had five bulldogs in the movie. They were all white so they could double for each other. We had one lead bulldog, which is called the face dog, who did all the primary work. And then we had other dogs that could do other different, more difficult parts. So that's how we got around that problem. And, and we had a lot of kids on set, but they were all 12 and 13. So and I, I suppose this doesn't necessarily apply to The Dogfather because that was a project, as you say, that was brought to you. But then you decided to go ahead and make your, your subsequent film, uh, the film that's just coming out now, uh, uh, Against the Wild. Again, yeah. family film, kids and dogs. Was that film specifically a family-oriented genre film designed to be obviously audience-friendly. Was that a market-driven decision based on your experience of doing The Dogfather or you just had such a good time working with kids and animals you wanted to replicate the experience? I'm just wondering how much the idea of making a movie to serve a specific market factored into, um, I, I guess, both those films. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's... No question that if uh, if a family film succeeds, it can succeed in a big way because of the simple mathematical fact that it can pull in everyone from 2 to 90. 
uh, whereas PG-13 and R and uh, NC-17, et cetera, you know, by their design, cut out, uh, you know, vast sectors of the, uh, of the audience. Uh, that said, for some reason, and I haven't been able to figure out why, uh, family films are oftentimes difficult to promote and, uh, and to sell. And again, I, I don't know the answer to that, why, why that is. Um, <clears throat> but uh, there's obviously a, uh, a market for them. No one can dispute that fact. Uh, when I, I, Against the Wild came about when uh, I had a number of ideas for another, you know, quote-unquote dog film that weren't panning out properly. Uh, and then just in a flash, uh, the idea came to me, uh, two kids and their Alaskan Malamute must survive in the wilderness after a plane crash. Call it Against the Wild. And I just wrote that one-sentence synopsis to <clears throat> a producer friend of mine, and he said, that's the one, Richard, that's the one we should go with. I sent the synopsis to uh, several distributors in the States. Uh, they were so excited about the synopsis, they said, well, you know, we're not going to pre-buy it but we will give you a letter of interest if that helps you. I said, okay, that's not really entirely what I need, but it's better than nothing. Um, so I went ahead and started, uh, started work on the script. It took me about four weeks to get to a first, uh, a first draft, then it was revised gradually as we went on. But it was not designed to be a comedy. It was a very different movie from The Dog Father. This was going to be a survival movie. Uh, the dog was going to be a hero. There were going to be large predators in the movie, grizzly bear, wolf, wolf pack, and a number of other, uh, you know, smaller supporting animals. So, so uh, before we go on, just yeah. just to be clear, because I think you actually highlighted on a, a couple fairly important points there. The first was uh, identifiable market, family film. Yeah. Uh, you had a log line, which was sellable. You went to the market. You got feedback from the market. The market told you it was sellable. And it was then and only then did you proceed down the rest of your path. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. so just wanted to recap that uh, just because those are all fairly important points that you kind of breeze through pretty quickly. Not yeah. your fault, by the way. I mean, <laughs> you're doing good. You're doing good. Keep it going. Keep it going. This is all good stuff. Yeah, so that, uh, you know, and then really it was uh, three years from the point where I sent that email to the point where I delivered the movie. I happened to look up that when I finished it, I happened to look up that uh, that first email I had sent out, and uh, it was ba- almost exactly three years from the date when I had come up with the concept to when I delivered the movie. So that's kind of a cautionary tale to prospective filmmakers, too, is just how long it takes to pull uh, everything together and get the movie from an idea to a final uh, sellable product. I was quite surprised when I learned that it took Steven Spielberg 10 years to get Lincoln made. And I thought, wow, if it takes Steven Spielberg that long to get a movie made, I mean, you know, that that's really incredible. You'd think, who would say no to Steven Spielberg? But the fact is a lot of people passed on that movie and did languish and people didn't want to finance it. So it took him quite a while to get it made. And that's that's there's su- such an incredible number of movies out there uh, that have been in that situation. Ender's Game, for instance, I just read recently online, had been in development since the 1980s. Uh, as far as a feature film project, and took a thousand twists and turns, and finally made it to the screen. So, yeah, I, that, I mean that's one of the clear distinctions that I've always made when it comes to film is that the difference between film and television uh, is very clear. Television is a business, 
And film, while it's also a business, is almost more driven by passion than it is business. Because in TV, there's a very clear yes or no. In film, it doesn't matter how long people say no to you. If you've got the passion, you've got the drive, you will find a way to get it made eventually. Yeah. So the casting process on Against the Wild. Clearly, yeah. Natasha Henstridge, yeah. sellable actress. Uh, can you talk a little bit, little bit about the packaging of that movie? Was getting somebody of Natasha's value uh, essential to the financing? Was it, it incident? Was. It was. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, please go on. Yeah, what happened there was uh, I took my, uh, my key art, my script, my synopsis, and my budget uh, to the French distributor that, that had distributed The Dogfather in France. And I said, uh, do you have any interest in this project? And do you think you could bring any pre-sales or financing to the table? They looked at the package. They immediately got back to me and said, yes, we're very excited about this. We know this will be sellable in Europe. We absolutely know it will be. You've got all the right elements here for a European audience. They'll love it. So they said, uh, so the first place they went to was TF1 in France, which is one of their biggest uh, over-air networks. TF1 read the script, and they said, we love it. We'd love to air this movie. We'll pre-buy it from you right now. And uh, they said, what about cast? And it was explained to them that we must have, uh, you know, a Canadian a Canadian actresses in, in the lead. They immediately suggested, you know, and I had, well, I had suggested, uh, you know, would Natasha Henstridge work for you? And they were very excited about that. They said, you know, Natasha is a big star in Europe, maybe even a bigger star in Europe than she is in North America. So they said, if you can get her to play the mom you've got a deal. So, in fact, the contract came back to me and it specifically stated that Natasha Henstridge had to be attached to the uh, project in order for the financing to go forward. And we had a couple of other Canadian actresses that were listed as uh, as alternates in case Natasha couldn't make it or didn't want to do it. So, now, had, had she not done it, yeah. I guess you would have started the process to try and get one of your alternates. Yes. But essentially what you're saying is that the financing was preconditional on being able to cast somebody that was of a sellable value. Yeah, and that's that's extraordinarily common in selling feature films in advance. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest factors is that the distributor or the buyer uh, wants a degree of cast comfort or cast approval. Uh, I always tell people that you should never hinge an entire movie on one cast member because anything can happen. They could get sick. They could get another project. You have no idea. So you have to at least have a couple of alternates in there that will be acceptable uh, before you go down the path. I've seen I've seen projects that were in pre-production for five years collapse at the last minute because a key star pulled out at the last second. And no producer wants to get into that situation. So, uh, you know, Natasha brought a tremendous amount of value. She is, has Canadian citizenship. So my uh, CAVCO and funding issues are uh, are resolved. Uh, my next biggest achievement was getting C.J. Adams into the movie because C.J. Adams played Timothy Green in Disney's The Odd, the Odd Life of Timothy Green in 2012. Now, he, he was so fresh off that movie that when he was here in Ontario shooting my film, that movie was still in theaters in Ontario. And, uh, you know, a lot of other producers were chasing him with projects. Uh, I got my script to him. He's 12 years old. Uh, he liked it. He said he wanted to do it. So I got him cast for you know the main lead role of of the of the boy, 
coming right off of Timothy Green, which made $50 million at the domestic box office and sold 1 million DVDs. So he brought uh, a lot of value to the project for the U.S. market because now I had a promotable child star in the movie as well uh, for the distributors to work with and say, well, not only does it have Natasha Henstridge, but it also has the bow you played, Timothy Green, and that movie is quite well known. So that was another good, uh, you know, successful piece of the puzzle for, for me to put in. Uh, that script is structured in a very simple A-B storyline. We have the kids lost in the woods for 80% of the screen time, and then we have the parents working with the search and rescue team trying to find the kids. And so regardless of which storyline we're on, there's a recognizable actor on screen. Either it's CJ or it's Natasha. CJ or Natasha. Was that, was that by design? or? Well, uh, once I had found a, uh, a known entity in terms of the child star, uh, I realized that, that that was going to be the case, and that would just help the movie right. uh, you know, be, be a little stronger. If, if I had not been able to find a notable child star to cover that end, then I would have brought in a name actor to play Natasha's uh, husband. I see. So your backup from a sales perspective was either have two recognizable actors as the parents yeah. or do one and one. And that was, I guess, a budgetary constraint. Yes. I mean, I would have loved to have had, you know, Tom Cruise play the dad, but on my budget, not possible. So, so uh, I guess the, the, the logical next question was um, because you make it sound like, oh, I went out to Natasha and we got her and then we went out to to you know TJ who was C, sorry yes. C, I'm sorry C, 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 yeah. C, CJ and then you know <laughs> I think I'm thinking like you know like, there's this actor like TJ from like the 80s uh, I forget his name anyways uh, so you, you went out to, to Natasha you went out to CJ uh, and you got them but was it difficult to get them was it difficult to get a script in their hands how did you go about doing that I mean one of the most common questions there is for I guess low budget filmmaking or mid budget filmmaking is this casting process it's a very, you know, it, it, it's a very, um, it's a very difficult process, or can be. So, in your experience, now, you know, how did that play out? What uh, what filmmakers need to remember going in their first time is that the entire process is controlled by agents, and getting past the agents can often be the most difficult part. If you're not a known director making a giant studio tentpole movie where the actor is going to be paid seven figures. A lot of times, just getting past the assistant is next to impossible. So, uh, you know, I strongly recommend that everybody use a casting director who already has pre-established contacts at all the major U.S. talent agencies uh, and have them put out the offers, get the script out. Uh, whatever you do, don't do it yourself. Uh, there are tons of casting directors out there that are great to work with and love to work with low-budget filmmakers, and they're rooting for you. Remember that they nothing makes them happier than to hear that you made a low-budget movie that they were the casting director on that was a huge success, and now you're being offered a much bigger project. Their hope is that you'll come back to them and hire them on the second, third, and fourth project. And in fact, when you watch the credits of movies – you will notice how many directors work with the same department heads over and over and over again. I know I do, and it's very popular for many directors to do that. So they're rooting for you to succeed. So use a casting director. The casting director is going to 
call the actor's agent, uh, get them on the phone, say, this is the script, this is the number of days we would like, uh, this is the amount of money that we have to offer. And the casting director will, in advance, be able to tell the filmmaker if their offer is even reasonable. So, for instance, if you say, well, we have $5,000 available, can we get Natasha Henstridge out for two weeks? The casting director is going to say, no, 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 you don't want to make that offer. That's not going to go very far. (laughs) So they're going to give you a good sense of the market value of that actor, and also, they're going to give you a good sense of if the agent is demanding too much money and you should walk away and try somebody else. So casting directors can be invaluable. Uh, it also elevates you as a filmmaker to have a casting director and to not work with the, uh, not talk to the agent uh, directly. Speak only through the casting director. And the casting director knows how to properly put an offer together uh, you know, and that that sort of thing. For first-time filmmakers working with unionized actors, you are certainly going to need a production attorney to go over all the contracts. There's going to be writers and long forms attached for name stars that need to be negotiated. Uh, it's extraordinarily common for those long-form contracts to, to still be in negotiation when the actor is on set shooting the movie. <laughs> That's very common. Uh, so long as you have a deal memo in place where you've agreed to the main points, you can go ahead. Uh, so, you know, that's – and then, of course, there's the issues of, uh, of scheduling and, uh, you know, but filmmakers have to be aware that bringing, uh, you know, a name actor onto set, the expenses are not just the salary. There are fringes all the benefits. So you can add 15% of whatever the salary is to that. There's first class airfare. There's limousine. There's first class accommodations. There's a much higher per diem than the rest of the crew gets. The list goes on and all of these things have to be budgeted. If you're hiring a child actor, they can't just arrive on set by themselves. They're going to come with at least one parent. So everything in the budget has to be times two in terms of the support for that actor. So all these things have to be thought about as you go through. Otherwise, you're going to blow a big hole in your budget that you weren't, uh, you know, that you weren't anticipating. This has been really great, Richard. I mean, there's there's tons of advice here. There's lots of stuff that certainly our listeners can really dig their teeth into. Uh, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, let people know how they can connect with you should they choose to want to ask you more questions offline. Yeah, anybody wants to uh, email me at uh, rdcboddington at yahoo.com, feel free. Happy to answer any questions. Great. I hope you get, uh, you know, thousands of emails after this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So please do. Email Richard with all your questions. He'll be happy to answer them. (laughs) Anyways, thanks thanks again for joining us, Richard. Uh, This really has been wonderful, and um, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jesse.